And we're just going to jump right in. Now, in our last study, we were looking at the baptism of Jesus. You may recall, John the Baptist was out there. Lots of people were being baptized. People were repenting of their sins. They were preparing themselves for the coming of the Messiah, not knowing that Jesus was that Messiah, but they were preparing themselves knowing that that was coming. And then Jesus went out to be baptized. And I made the point that that's kind of weird because this whole baptism was a, it's a symbol of the washing that people wanted to undergo for their sin. They were repenting of their sin. They were getting ready for God's promised Messiah. So if it was a symbol of repentance, then why would Jesus go out to be baptized? Because as we said, Jesus had nothing that he needed to be uh, repentful of. He had nothing that he had to repent of. And you may recall, if you were with us, I made the point that while Jesus' act was a symbol, going out and being baptized by John was a symbol, it was symbolic differently from everybody else that was going out. They were going out, and it was a symbol that their sins were being washed and clean. Jesus was going out, and it was a symbol of his identification with those that were being washed and cleansed. And so Jesus went out for a different purpose. He went out to identify with humanity. He went out to make a statement that he was going to become a man, that he was going to die, that he would be buried, and as in baptism, he would come out of that water, he would rise again. Jesus was essentially declaring here, I am identifying with humanity, and I have come to save humanity. And so Jesus goes to be baptized. That's the context of things. Now, take notice of chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So the context of things is, here's Jesus, he's being baptized. Uh, we read that the Holy Spirit came, descended upon him, as it were, like a dove. We read that there was a voice from heaven. And then you look at the first word of chapter 4, and it says, and then Jesus was led. It says in the book of Luke, in the parallel passage in Luke chapter 4, it says, then Jesus was immediately led. So as soon as this baptism is concluded, Jesus is immediately sent into the wilderness. Now the wilderness would be like the desert. And so he's sent off there now into the desert, and as it says in verse 1, he is going to be tempted by the devil. And so we saw last week that Jesus identified with humanity in baptism. Now he is going to identify with humanity in temptation. And I believe that Matthew chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, Mark chapter 1, and a little bit of a reference that's found in the book of John, I believe all of them are very, very practical scriptures for us. Let me ask you this question. Anybody here ever get tempted? Tempted? Some of you are being tempted right now to lie. No, I never get tempted. You know, I'm a good Christian or whatever. All of us, we get tempted. So it's, it's helpful for us to look at a passage like Matthew chapter 4 because what we see in Matthew chapter 4 is a model, is an example for us of how we can deal with temptation and not give in to temptation. And that's what Jesus does. Now some of you are probably thinking, well, of course Jesus doesn't give in to temptation. He's God. He's the sinless one. And so how can you tempt the sinless one to sin and all of that? But here's the important thing that you need to know before we look at the passage. That Jesus deals with the temptation that comes his way, not as God, but as man. So Satan could have come to him and said, hey, here, take it. It's wonderful. And Jesus could have called down lightning bolts, as God could do, and chased Satan away, correct? But Jesus doesn't deal with it that way. He deals with each of these temptations as a man and is victorious over them. And that's an example to you, that's a model to you and to myself, that we too do not have to give in to the temptation that is going to come our way. So I think it is a very practical passage of Scripture. 
Now, before we jump into the passage, let me just make four quick mentions of things we know about temptation in the Bible. The first thing that we know is this, that temptation is going to come. That every one of us, in one way or another, is going to deal with temptation. And it's going to come in a variety of ways. What might tempt you might not be a real temptation for me. What might tempt me is probably not a temptation for you. But every one of us is going to deal with some form of temptation. So that's point number one. The Bible makes it very clear that temptation will come our way. The second thing is this, that temptation is not a lack of spirituality. So the fact that you get tempted, that you are being tempted and things like that, that's not an indicator that you're not doing well spiritually or something like that. I can tell you pretty certainly, Jesus was doing very well spiritually. He had a very good quiet time going with his father and all of that. He was doing fine spiritually. And it's actually been said that many times temptations will come right after we are coming off of that spiritual high. The quote that you hear sometimes is, after the blessings come the battles. And so often, you are coming back from a retreat, and you're hit hard with the temptation. Often, you're making a commitment to the Lord. You know what, Lord? I'm, I'm changing my ways in this particular regard. And then you're hit more with that thing than you ever were before. And it comes at you. So the temptations come many times, the blessings, uh, after the blessings come the battles. So temptations are going to come. It's not an indicator of a person's lack of spirituality. The third thing we know about temptations is temptations don't come from God. God's never going to tempt us. The devil tempts us. Our flesh is tempted. But God himself will never tempt us, the scripture says. But he does allow temptation to occur. So the, God will allow temptation to occur. It says in the book of James, it says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So God doesn't tempt us, but he allows it, and he accomplishes a purpose through it. And then the fourth thing that we can see about temptation from the Word of God is this, and I love this one more than anything, is that giving in to temptation is not inevitable. Giving in to temptation is not inevitable. Isn't that a glorious truth? You know, speaking about temptation, the Apostle Paul said this, and I think this is a verse that every Christian should learn right when they become a Christian. And if you haven't done so, then throw it into your Bible memory category or catalog or whatever. But it says this in 1 Corinthians 10, that God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will always provide the way of escape. He'll also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And the reason why I think that is such a, an important verse to memorize is because it's both encouraging and empowering to know that the Lord will provide the way of escape. Now, like you would say to yourself, now where is that way of escape? Because it's there, and you know it is. So the question is not, will I ever be able to get out of this? But the question is, how has God provided for me to get out of this? And the real issue then is not, is there a way of escape, but are we going to take the way of escape? I'm reminded of a, Christian, uh, of a story, I should say. It's of a Christian guy. His community was about to get hit by a terrible storm and a flood. And the story is this. I'll read most of it to you. It says, A terrible storm came into a town, and local officials, they sent out an emergency warning that the riverbanks would soon overflow and flood the nearby homes. They ordered everyone in the town to evacuate immediately. A faithful Christian man, he heard the warning, and he decided to stay, saying to himself, I will trust God. And if I'm in danger, then God will send a divine miracle to save me. 
The neighbors came by his house and they said, we're leaving and there's room for us, for you in our car. Please come with us. But the man declined. He said, no, I have faith that God will save me. As the man stood on his porch watching the water rise up the steps, a man in a canoe paddled by and called out to him, hurry, come into my canoe. The waters are rising quickly. But the man says, no thanks, God is going to save me. The floodwaters rose even higher, pouring water into his living room. So the man retreated to his second floor. A police motorboat came by and saw him at the window. And they said, we will come up and rescue you, they shouted. But the man refused, waving them off, saying, use your time to save someone else. I have faith that God's going to save me. The floodwaters rose even higher and higher, and the man had to climb up to his rooftop. A helicopter spotted him, dropped the rope ladder, and a rescue officer came down the ladder and pleaded with the man, grab my hand, I'll pull you up. But the man still refused. Folding his arms tightly to his body, he said, no thank you, God will save me. Well, shortly after the house broke up and the water swept uh, the man away, and he drowned. When in heaven, the man stood before God, and he asked, I put all my faith in you. Why didn't you come to save me? And God said, son, in that tone, I suspect, he said, he said, son, I sent you a warning. I sent you a car. I sent you a canoe. I sent you a motorboat, and I sent you a helicopter. What more were you looking for? God will always provide a way of escape. And according to the promise of the Word of God, when you face temptation, there is a way out of that temptation. That giving in to temptation is not inevitable. The question becomes, are you going to take that way of escape? Well, Jesus here is going to be faced with three different temptations by the devil himself in Matthew chapter 4. And I want to take some time today and go through them and look at them at the way he encountered them, the methods of the enemy. The, our term today, our, our title today is the method of the tempter, the response of the tempted. And again, remind yourself that Jesus didn't respond to Satan as God, if you will, to be victorious, but he did as a man so that you could follow his example. Let's take a look at the first 11 verses of chapter 4. Everybody ready? I feel like I'm flying. Everybody's seatbelts are on and you're good? It said, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Verse 5, it says, Then the devil took him to the holy city, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus said to him again, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Verse 8, Again the devil took him on a high, to a high mountain, a very high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All of these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministered to him, ministering to him. Right after the spiritual high of his baptism, Jesus is immediately driven here into the desert, and he's going to be tempted by the devil. Now, notice, the Holy Spirit is not the one tempting Jesus to sin. He's the one that drove him out into the wilderness, but it's going to be the devil that is going to tempt him 
into sin. And as I said earlier, it's, temptation is inevitable, and it's not a mark of a lack of spirituality to be tempted. Because here is Jesus off of this wonderful spiritual high, if you will, this experience of his baptism where it says that the Spirit descended on him. That's a spiritual high, wouldn't you agree? And so the Spirit of God descends like a dove and comes to rest on him. And just one month later, a little more than that, 40 days later, Jesus is now experiencing these great temptations. And think about the temptations. One of them in particular, he was being tempted to worship and serve Satan. That's a pretty bad temptation, isn't it? You know, sometimes I'm tempted by things and I think to myself, what's the matter with you? Like, where, What causes something like that to come into your mind? Or whatever. But I've never been tempted to worship Satan. That seems to be a pretty big one. And so here is Jesus coming off of this spiritual high and now he's being literally tempted to worship Satan. It's not because he was in a bad place spiritually that he was experiencing these temptations. In fact, it was because he was in a good place spiritually that he was facing these temptations. Remember that the Holy Spirit is the one that sent him out there. So in obedience to the Holy Spirit, he finds himself in this place where he's being tempted. And he's driven out there into the wilderness. Now, part of the reason why this text is in, in the Scripture for us is so that we can follow Jesus' example. And so Jesus was driven into the wilderness and he was tempted to be an example to you and I, because the first man, Adam, he was driven, if you will, into his own little wilderness experience there in the garden, and he was tempted. And how did Adam do? He didn't do very well. He failed when he faced temptation. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says this of Jesus. It refers to him as our last Adam. So our first Adam was tempted and failed, but our last Adam, Jesus, will be tempted and he will be victorious. Adam, the first Adam, was enticed and deceived, but the last Adam kept his eyes on truth and he stood strong. And so Jesus serves as an example for you and I. Now, speaking of strength and contrasting that with weakness, take notice of verse 2. It says, now after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I think, I don't know of any more of an understatement in the Bible than that particular statement that after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, physiologists tell us that the human body does some interesting things when it goes without food for this length of time. I don't know. Have, has anyone here ever fasted for 40 days? Anybody? I didn't think so. All right? I haven't either. So we're going to have to trust the physiologist here. What physiologists tell us is that after about five days to a week of fasting, that the human body doesn't really feel the hunger pangs any longer as it did early on in the fast. But what they tell us is after now about five or six weeks, so after about five or six days you don't feel the pain anymore, but after about five or six weeks the pains come back and they come back very, very strong. And that is an indicator that the body is beginning to shut down. I need food. And it begins to communicate that now to the person. So the hunger then that Matthew is referring to is Jesus' body essentially telling to him, you are starving to death, and you need to get some food now. So it seems like it's an understatement to you and I that he fasted 40 days and he was hungry. The, the point is that he fasted 40 days and now he was starving to death. His body is beginning to shut down. And it's then, notice, then that Satan comes to tempt him. 
And I think that's the first point. Remember, the title of our sermon is The Method of the Temper, uh, the Tempter, the Response of the Tempted. So take notice of this first method of the temper, tempter that Satan comes to tempt us at a point when we are physically weak. Satan comes to tempt us at a point when we are physically weak. So when you're exhausted from a long day, don't be surprised late at night if the tempter comes to tempt you. When you're emotionally exhausted because you've been dealing with a whole bunch of things, don't be surprised when the, if the Holy Spirit comes to tempt you. So here's Jesus' natural appetite providing the tempter what would typically be an advantage that he can exploit. And we'd like to think that the devil would look at our condition and say something like, well, let's give the guy a break. He's going through some things, you know. Let's wait till a more opportune time when it'll be a fair fight or something like that. But the reality is we know from the Scripture it makes it clear that Satan is in no way averse to kicking a man when he is down. And so here is Jesus at his weakest physically when the onslaught begins and comes against him. So look at verse 3. It says, So the tempter comes to him and he says to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But as we read, Jesus answered, It's written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now the dry, rocky wilderness where Jesus would be there of Judea, it would have been filled with small little oval-like stones, just kind of scattered all over the place. Basically all the dirt that would typically cover that has sort of blown away or whatever. So you have all these little stones there. And essentially Satan points over to a pile of those stones and he says, what if they were all freshly baked bread rolls and all of that kind of stuff and you're hungry now, could you just imagine what they would look like? And so he essentially says to him, command these stones to become bread. My wife, she does the shopping, food shopping in our house, and she found these rolls. What are those rolls, dear? We fight over them in our home, literally. So we began to buy two bags of them, and we fill up the basket with them. And my family is crazy enough, we're weird enough people, we count them out. And so you get two, and you get two, and you get two, and I get three, you know, and all that kind of stuff. You know, somebody's got to take the lead. And so, uh, he, I, I think that's what the bread looked like, personally. I imagine those little rolls that my wife makes, or whatever. And so, Satan comes to him, and he tempts him to turn those uh, stones into bread to satisfy his hunger. Now, notice how he begins, verse 3. He says, if you are the Son of God. He's going to do that twice. Twice during this uh, temptation process, he's going to say, if you are the Son of God. Now, in the English language, it seems to imply he's saying as if he doesn't believe it. So if you really are the Son of God, prove that you are the Son of God. You know, something like that. But it should probably more properly be translated not if you are the Son of God, but since you are son of, the Son of God. So it's not as if Satan is doubting whether Jesus is the Son of God or getting Jesus to doubt whether he is the Son of God, but rather he's trying to exploit the fact that he's the Son of God. And so he says to him, since you are the Son of God, you shouldn't be hungry. It's your right. You're the Son of God. Why should the Son of God be hungry? Since you are the Son of God, you shouldn't have to experience these pains. Since you are the Son of God, you should use your miraculous powers to alleviate your suffering. You see what he's doing there? He's trying to get Jesus to use his abilities as God himself to satisfy his own needs 
and to alleviate his own sufferings, to exercise his own rights, you hear so often, you know, even in our day. And he begins to tempt him. Now what you're going to see is there are three different categories of temptation that the devil almost always, typically would always employ. And he'll do that with Jesus here as well. It says in 1 John chapter 2, it says this, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And I think that passage pretty much gives us a good indication of how the enemy is going to come against us, appeal to our flesh, and he's going to do so by tempting us to our flesh, to our eyes, and to our pride, essentially. And that's what Satan did in the very first temptation that we read about in Genesis chapter 3. As he appealed to Adam and Eve, he appeals to their uh, flesh, he appeals to their eyes, and he appeals to their pride. Genesis 3 says, when the, son, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, and that it was a delight to the eyes, lust of the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, pride of life, she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And it's the exact same method that he used there in the beginning of time that he uses to tempt Jesus, and then he'll more than likely appeal to you as he tries to get you to sin and to disobey in your following of Christ. And so he comes to Jesus with this first temptation, appealing to Jesus' flesh, Jesus' human needs and the needs of his body. And he says, since you're the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Now, in appealing to Jesus' flesh, Satan tempts Jesus to doubt the goodness of the Father. And Satan always attempts to get us to doubt God's goodness and God's love for us. That's what he did back with Eve. You may recall, if you're not familiar with the story, but he says to Eve, essentially these things. Hath God really said you can't eat of any tree in the garden? He says to Eve when she says, well, we can, we can eat of all those trees, but not that one. If we eat of that one, we'll die. He says, you will not surely die. Because he says, God knows when you eat of it, you will be like him. He says to Eve, essentially, he's keeping something from you because he doesn't want you to enjoy that good thing. You see how he turned everything around? And now he's getting Eve to doubt the goodness of God. So to Jesus, he says this, basically. He says, you're the Son of God. You shouldn't have to suffer in this way. A few minutes ago, um, in our case, a chapter ago, he said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. If he is really well pleased with you, then why is he allowing you to go through these things? He essentially says to them something you've probably heard. If God really loved you, then he wouldn't. And then you go on and you, you fill in the blank with whatever God shouldn't be doing that you're now going through. And he's throwing doubt into the goodness of God. Satan essentially seeks to get Jesus to become impatient with the plan of God and the timing of God. Was it God's intention to allow Jesus to starve to death? Come on, that's an easy one, folks. No, he, he came to die on a cross. And so the plan of God and the timing of God is that he would make it out of the wilderness here and out of this period of fasting. But Satan is getting Jesus, he's tempting Jesus to become impatient with the plan of God and the timing of God and instead take matters into his own hands. And so he appeals to the needs, the need of Jesus to satiate his human flesh. That's not an evil desire to need food. And he wants to convince him that, it is, that that need is more important than obedience to the Father. Now, is that an, a method that the enemy uses? Have you experienced that method 
in your life as well? I think it is. You know, you think about that idea as it pertains to our sex-crazed culture. And what does our sex-crazed culture say to young people or to those that are unmarried? You have needs. You have desires. It begins to say things like this. You know, in Bible times, they got married when they were 12. Nobody even had desires, you know, at the age of 12. And they got married then, but, you know, now we get married 25, 26, 27. And so God understands you have needs. And they want to lie to us. The devil wants to lie to us, essentially, that these physical needs are more important than obedience. And it's the method that the, the enemy will use even in our day. So we see two methods already now by the enemy. Number one, doubt God's intentions for you. God is not good, and He does not want good things for you. And secondly, submit to your fleshly desires over spiritual obedience. Now look at verse 4. This is how Jesus responds. And Jesus answers, and He says, no, it's written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So going back to the Word of God, Jesus, and this is what you can pattern for yourself, going back to the Word of God, Jesus corrects Satan's lies. It's so important. My wife has a book that she shares with a lot of the people that she works with um, that has something to do with lies. What's it called? I think it's lies that women believe or something like that that, that is passed around a lot. And one of the things that Robin has shared with me, and again, remember, I'm most frequently counseled by Robin. You know, I've been in like 23 years of counseling with her. Uh, and one of the things that she has pointed out to me, to our kids, and to others is this idea that you know, all of this wrong thinking has a starting point. It all goes back to some place. And so often what you have to do is you have to correct this lie, and you've got to go back to that place where the lie is corrected, and that's in the Word of God. So Jesus goes back to the Word of God, and he corrects this lie from Satan. So Satan says, you have physical needs, and those physical needs must be met. And Jesus responds, and he says, no. By the authority of the Word of God, I tell you, I am not, first and foremost, a physical creature, but rather a spiritual creature. And so first and foremost, what I need is not bread, but it's obedience to God's Word. He corrects the lie from Satan. Now, I think Satan's temptation is somewhat rational and relatively reasonable. But nonetheless, it is still a lie, and it's designed to deceive. And so Jesus responds with the truth of God's Word, and, and it's, it's magnified for us there where it says, it is written. And Jesus is going to answer each one of these temptations by pointing to the Word of God. So again, in His deity, Jesus could have called down lightning bolts to chase Satan off, but He doesn't do that. And He responds to these things as any other human being could respond to these things that was dependent upon God and His Word and the power of the Holy Spirit to stand up to temptation. And so Jesus gives us the first example. Confront the lie with truth. And where are you going to discover the truth? Only in the Word of God. Bible! Sunday school answer. Somebody. Only the Word of God. You're not going to find the truth in our culture. You know, I, I took a poll, I asked everybody else around, and they thought it would be okay if I turned the stones into bread, so I did. Based on 65% of respondents or whatever. You're not going to find the answer in our culture because our culture essentially is going to leave you with, well, everybody else is doing it. You're not going to find the, the answer even internally. Well, in my heart. It, just, it felt right in my heart. Because you know what? Your heart is a liar. 
And just because it feels right or it feels like something you should be doing is not necessarily truth. You have to go back to the place of truth. And that's the Word of God. And you have to speak truth to that temptation. So essentially, Satan would say, or excuse me, Jesus would say something like, Satan, you want me to believe that satisfying my flesh should be the chief order of man. The truth is, though, honoring and obeying God is man's chief order. And that's what I am going to do. And so Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone. Now he quotes this passage from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. What's interesting is every one of the quotations that Jesus gives are from Deuteronomy chapter 6 to Deuteronomy chapter 8. And that's caused some people to think that Jesus was having his quiet time in Deuteronomy 6 through chapter 8 and that these verses were sort of fresh on his mind. I don't know how anybody could possibly know that that's where his quiet time was, but it kind of makes some sense. And I'll make a couple of points about it. And that number one is this. How often do we neglect studying a book like Deuteronomy? Because Deuteronomy is boring. It's not exciting. You know, I want to get to Jesus. You know, and all. I like Jesus. I do. I really do. I, I implied I don't like him or something. You know, but we, we skip books like Leviticus. We skip books like Numbers or whatever because they're not fun. They're not exciting or whatever it may be. Jesus found time to get into Deuteronomy and quote Deuteronomy and the strength to withstand temptation from the truths that those books communicate. And so I'd encourage you, all Scripture is God-breathed and dig into all of Scripture. The second point, if indeed Jesus was having a quiet time in Deuteronomy chapter 6 through 8, then we see the importance of the Word of God. Even the verse itself, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I suspect if you haven't already ate breakfast today, you're planning for a big brunch or something after service. You make it a priority to eat every day, don't you? Yeah, you do. You know, you don't even give it much thought. You don't think of yourself as a martyr because you took some time to have a bowl of cereal or whatever. It's just a priority in your life. Well, the Word of God needs to be a priority in your life in the very same way. And Jesus demonstrates that. Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from God's mouth. Well, let's move on here. Jesus resists the initial attempt, and so Satan returns and he modifies his attack. Look at verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, said, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. It's written, he'll command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they're going to bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Notice what Satan does here. Satan discovers that Jesus is a Bible-believing Christian, and so what does Satan do? He comes back at Jesus by quoting Bible verses. Isn't that shocking? To me it is. You've read the story, you're like, no, I've read the story many times. It's not. But it's as if Satan is saying, oh, I didn't realize you were familiar with the Bible. Well, you do know that the Bible says this doesn't, don't you? Or whatever. And he quotes the Bible at Jesus. He quotes actually from Psalm 91. Two different quotes there from verses 11 and 12. You know, and you think about our day, how many people, the response to the biblical stance perhaps that you're taking on an issue, the response is to quote a passage from the Bible. You know, so you think about the homosexuality issue that is sort of prevalent in our day, and how often, well, you do know that the real sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was in hospitality, don't you? Oh, you've never read Ezekiel chapter 16? That's, it, it's closed it right there for you. You think, oh, I didn't know that. Or whatever. Now you feel like, oh, gosh, I, I guess everything I thought was wrong. You know, they'll say something like, well, you know, the same book that says that homosexuality is wrong also says that you shouldn't eat shellfish or bacon and all these other things. You do that, don't you? 
And now they've thrown you because they've taken some Bible verses and thrown them at you there. The tempter has essentially done that to get you to doubt what it was you were believing in the first place. And so using the Word of God for the person that is a believer is here the purpose of it is to throw the person off and to tempt them. And so, let me ask you this. I don't know if you've read through Psalm 91. Does Psalm 91 say those things that Satan just said they say? Absolutely. Word for word. Satan knows his Bible. And so Satan quotes these particular passages here. But here's the next method of the enemy, of Satan, as he's going to tempt you to sin. The next method is to deceive people by either misquoting or misapplying God's Word. And so as I said earlier, Satan properly quotes the verses, but he does not properly apply the verses. And we don't have time to go into Psalm 91 today, but you can go back, and I'd encourage you to go back and look at it. If you look at Psalm chapter 91, you have to read the entire chapter in its context. Otherwise, you can pull those things out and say you can jump off a building and you'll be perfectly safe because Psalm 91 verse 11 says you will be perfectly safe. But what Psalm 91 is about, it's a passage designed to teach that the children of God, the people of God, can trust God for His protection. And what Satan does instead is he twists the idea of God's protection and he tempts Jesus instead from trusting God to tempting God. And that's not what the passage is about at all. And so in verse 4, he takes him to a high point, high point of the temple, and he says to him, since you're the Son of God, prove it. Prove that you are the Son of God. And prove also whether God can indeed be trusted. Now, sometimes I think of this, and I think, you know, maybe Jesus should have jumped. He should have jumped from that temple. The angels come. They lower him down safely. And he says to everybody, see, here I am. And all of the people that are gathered there in the temple are like, that's got to be the Messiah. And he could avoid all of that other stuff about going to a cross and dying on a cross and dealing with all of that pain and all of that. And the people will have already recognized that he is the Messiah. The problem is this. Satan is appealing to Jesus' pride here. Remember, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. He's appealing to Jesus' pride. He's saying to him, you can be the hero of this people. He's saying to him, I know the plan of God is for you to come and be a servant and give your life on behalf of many, but all of that can be avoided. You perform this great miracle and everyone will know exactly who you are. But Jesus, he sees through this, and again, he quotes Scripture properly. He says this, he says, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus says to him, no. I will trust God and allow Him to accomplish His purposes. Satan says, jump and show us you trust God. Jesus responds and says, you know what? I won't jump to show you that I trust God. I don't have to put Him to the test, He says. I don't need to test God to see if He can be trusted. When I was a school teacher, Dan might recall, from time to time, I loved exercising my right as a school teacher to issue the pop quiz. Any school teachers here? like to use the pop quiz to just make kids suffer a little, you know, and show them who's boss. So I like to ex- or do the pop quiz. And typically, the, the reason I used the pop quiz to, was to see essentially if the kids did the homework the evening before. Now, I could have simply asked, 
Did everybody do the homework last night? Show of hands. Everybody did the homework or whatever. And every hand would go up because believe it or not, there are many high school students that don't tell the truth all of the time. But I could have simply said, you know, did everyone do it? And they said yes. And I would say good. And we could move on from there. But I tested them with the pop quiz because I didn't believe them. You see? And so Jesus, he could have believed the Lord or the Father in this case that he can entrust himself to the Father or he could put him to the test to just make sure that he trusted the Father. And Jesus didn't feel the need at all to put his Father to the test. He said, essentially he said, I can trust the Father and I don't need to put him to the test to prove that he can be trusted. So he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You know, you think about the devil. The devil is wily. And because of that, we need to be careful of his schemes. The schemes of the enemy, and particularly of the way that he will attempt to even use the Word of God to deceive believers. Misquoting the Scripture. Using it out of context. Making application that doesn't apply. I've said it a lot of times, I'm sure. But we need to be Bereans. And and what that means is there was a group of people that lived in a town called Berea. And Paul went to minister to these people that lived in the town of Berea, and he began to share the gospel with them. And this was new information for these people here. And they had believed the things of the Old Testament, but now here is this guy coming in and saying that Jesus has fulfilled those things in the Old Testament. And the Bereans, they sit there, they listen, they're like, this is, this is good, this is resonating. But they don't leave it at that. They go home, it says, Paul says, they go home and they search the Scriptures, essentially the Old Testament, to see if these things are so, it says. And Paul's not offended by that at all. I, I would think you might be a little offended. What, you don't believe me? What, you think I'd come here and I'd lie? I'd come all this way? But Paul commends them that they would do that. Dig into the Word to see if the things they were learning about the Word was actually true. And so we use the phrase, we need to be like Bereans. So when the Word of God is quoted to us, it may or may not resonate in your heart. There may be a sense of that doesn't seem right. You don't just believe it because it technically is found in the pages there. You dig into it. You look at the context of it. What does all of Scripture say related to that particular topic? Because if all of Scripture says this, and now this new idea says that, it's a pretty good, uh, good point, good uh, chance that you've misinterpreted it or somebody else has. And so we need to be Bereans. And so he, he tempts them a second way. Now, look at verse 8. Satan doesn't give up. And it says again, he took, the devil took him to a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, all of these I give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Now we get to the heart of the matter. This is what Satan has always wanted, essentially from the beginning of time, to be worshipped. If you're not familiar, Satan was not always known as Satan. He was known as Lucifer. He was created as an angel. There's some idea in the Scripture, implication in the Scripture, that he was the lead worship leader. He was the worship leader of heaven and of the angels. And at some point, we read about it in Isaiah chapter 14, I think, at some point Satan's heart was lifted up and he essentially said to himself, why does he, God, why does he always get to be worshipped? I want that. You see, Satan hungers and thirsts that he might be worshipped. He might be obeyed. He might be listened to. All of those things that should be reserved for our relationship with God. He wants those things. And so now we get down right to the point of everything. He is willing to trade everything. You can have it all. 
Just bow your knee just one time to me, and you could have it all. Now, you think about the temptation that would come your way where somebody said, look, I'll give you a million dollars. I read on Facebook. I don't know how appropriate it is, but whatever. You chose to bring your kids here. I read on Facebook that somebody said, you know, would you walk across the street right now naked for a million dollars? And I said, yes, I would. No, I didn't. I didn't say that there, <laughs> uh, but I thought about it there. You know, you think about the temptation. What would you give into for a million dollars? Fancy house. The right to be the president. Nah. Something like that. Or what would you sell your soul for, essentially? And he says to Jesus here, you could have anything you want. You could have it all. Just bow your knee to me. Just bow your knee one time to me. Now, is Satan lying when he says you could have it all? Is he lying? Jesus doesn't say to him, you don't have the right to have, you don't have it all to even give to me. Don't come with that fake lie to me or, or something like that. Jesus doesn't deny the ability of Satan to give him all the kingdoms of the earth. The Scripture says that Satan is the god of this age. The general idea is simply, now God is still sovereign, capital G, but small g, he is the god of this age. The Scripture says that the entire world, those that are unsaved, are under the sway of, of the enemy, the devil. Can lead them and direct them and trick them and deceive them and fool them by, by appealing to their flesh. And Jesus doesn't deny any of those things here. And so Satan offers the whole world. Essentially, you could say this, that there, when Adam was placed here on the earth, that he was given dominion over the earth, but that he forfeited that dominion to the enemy when he gave in and he uh, ate of the fruit that Satan presented to him here. And so here, Satan has the ability to offer all of these things to the Lord. But the Lord responds and he says, no. You see, Jesus did come to redeem this earth in the same way that he came to redeem you and I. If you look at the book of Revelation, you will see that the title deed will ultimately be pay, placed, uh, passed back to Jesus. And he will come and he will redeem the entire earth. But there's a plan to get there. Now, you might look at this and you say, well, you know, the ends justify the means. If we're just trying to get back the title deed to the earth, and this is a nice, simple, easy way to do it, then let's do it. But Jesus said, no, the ends do not justify the means. And so instead, he says, I will continue to trust the Father. And so quoting Scripture, he says, Be gone, Satan, because it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Again, Satan's plan, it might seem reasonable, it might seem logical, and it is certainly the more comfortable means, but it contradicts God's Word. And since it contradicts God's Word, something must be wrong about it. Because God's Word makes it very clear that He alone is the one to be worshipped. And so it's logical, it's reasonable, it's comfortable, but it contradicts God's Word, so I'm not going down that path. And so Jesus says no. Three attempts at temptation. Three times Jesus responds with the Word of God. Now let me make one final point. Jesus doesn't quote Scripture as if it's some good luck charm. Okay? You remember those old movies with like the vampires or whatever? And the vampires would come and, and they would hold up the crucifix or they would hold up the Bible, the priest would, you know, and, and the vampire couldn't do anything or whatever, the werewolf or whatever, couldn't do anything because of the crucifix and the Bible here. The Word of God is not a good luck charm like you see in these old movies here. Jesus quoted Scripture not as some magic formula. It wasn't as if Satan was like, ah, I can't hear that or whatever, and holds his ears, and he goes running away. 
But every time Jesus quotes Scripture, it's a declaration of His intention to keep that Scripture. And so Satan says, man shall not live, or Jesus says, excuse me, man shall not live by bread alone. That's a declaration of His intention to put aside His bodily desires and instead obey the Word of the Lord. He says God is not to be put to, to the test. That's a declaration that He will not test God in this, but that He trusts Him and doesn't need to put God to the test. He says God alone is to be worshipped. That's His determined stance that He will not bow the knee to the devil. The Bible says be a doer of the Word and not a hearer only. I think it's okay we can add to that verse and not just a sayer of the Word as well. Be a doer of the Word, not just a quoter of the Word, but be a doer of the Word. Getting bread was not the most important thing in Jesus' life. Obeying His Father was. Achieving personal fame and glory was not His chief goal. Following the will of His Father was. Taking the easy way out was not the most important thing for Him. Worshiping and serving the Father alone was. Three different temptations in similar forms, no doubt, that you yourself are going to face. And each of those can be resisted. Not by supernatural abilities, but simply through the natural ability that's available to each one of us and that each of us possess as we entrust ourselves to God and His will that is revealed to us in His Word. Now let me make one final point. Verse 11, it says, Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and ministered to him. Now that's not meant to imply that the battle was won and now the war is over. We know, you could say of course we know, that Satan returned to tempt the Lord. Even at the foot of the cross we see a temptation coming where they say, the, the people that are there say, he saved others, he cannot save himself, he's the king of Israel, let him come down. That's a temptation to end the suffering, end the pain, end the humiliation. And so Satan doesn't stop tempting the Lord here in this particular case here. And so we don't want to make the mistake of thinking that the war is over just because we were victorious in a particular battle. Again, to quote from Luke's account of this story, it says, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed until a more opportune time presented itself. And that idea of a more opportune time, it means a number of things. He's coming back to tempt again, and it's not opportune according to your time schedule. It's opportune according to his. And so he's all looking down, he's waiting. He's, oh, he's going to have a rough week. Oh, and his wife's going to be away. I'm ready. I'm coming Friday night. You see, a more opportune time to bring you down to deceive you and to trick you. He'll be back. And so the Apostle Peter, if we, we know that truth, the Apostle Peter says this, be sober-minded. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And as I said earlier, you're never more at risk than after a period of victory. And so keep your guard up. As James says, keep resisting the devil and he will flee from you. The Lord will provide with every temptation that comes your way the way of escape. Isn't that great news? But you have to keep your guard up. You have to be aware. And when you experience a temptation and you know this is a temptation that, that is coming at me here, and if I'm not careful, then you start glancing around and you're looking for the trap door to get out of that particular circumstance there. You can resist the devil and not give in to temptation. And the Scripture promises you resist the devil and he will flee from you. Temptations can be resisted and you can walk in victory. And I think that's great truth. And I just love it.
Let's pray. Father, we delight in You and we delight in the power of the Holy Spirit to live the Christian life, Lord. Lord, that You filled us with Your Spirit, You guide us, You direct us. I think about that verse in Isaiah in which the Spirit whispers, this is the way that You are to go, walk ye therein. Lord, the great promise that if we resist the devil, he'll flee, that with the temptation comes a way of escape. All of these truths. Lord, we thank You for the Word of God. And I pray that You would give us a greater hunger and burden personally for the Word. Lord, that You would just kind of do like a clicking in our mind where there's just this reality of the truth that man shall not, cannot live by bread alone, but has to live by the Word of God. And Lord, You would drive us to it and that it would become our fill and the sustenance whereby we walk every day. Lord, thank You for the pattern and example of our Lord. And Father, give us the strength to walk in the same ways we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.